So Jay, you've mentioned the Exiles on and off, but I still don't have a really clear sense of what their deal is. Are they like X-Men who dimension hop? Kinda sorta. They do dimension hop, but they're not all X-Men. They're whatever motley crew the Time Broker happens to assemble. Okay, wait, 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 go back a step. The Time Broker, so they've got a boss. Again, kind of. Originally, their nominal purpose was to fix a bunch of fractured timelines and the Time Broker, along with the Talus. The Talus. It's this fancy gauntlet that lets them reality hop, handles some communication functions. You know, your standard issue time travel MacGuffin. Uh, okay, so the Time Broker gives them the Talus and sends them off to repair broken timelines. Yeah, it's about the long and the short of it. How do the timelines get broken in the first place? Well, turns out this ancient alien race basically fractured the entire multiverse, then set themselves up somewhat guiltily to repair it. So the Time Broker is one of them? No. The Time Broker is an illusion that they use to interface with the teams they assemble. And the real powers behind the throne are... A bunch of very large, very formal... Bureaucrats? Insects. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 196 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to an episode that is going to be very full of things, because we are back with Alan Davis's Excalibur, and these comics are just so dense, like they're almost like the opposite of the decompressed comics of today, where you are through them in five minutes. Like, I don't know, I, I feel like I should have had a magnifying glass and, and a notebook and have been dictating to Diane the whole time I was reading these issues. No, 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 you're thinking of X, uh, X Factor these days. That's, that's the one that has the Twin Peaks references. Oh, well, I suppose that's true. So... As Miles mentioned, we are going to be looking at Excalibur, and in fact, we're, we're going to be looking at the big mid-series climax of Excalibur. This is going to be Excalibur number 48 through 50. At this point, Alan Davis has been writing for only six issues, but he has been really, really busy tying up loose plot threads and picking up others to weave into this massive multiversal convergence that we're going to see now. So Miles, do you want to do it or shall I? I mean, with a story like this, with the climax of Alan Davis's first run, I'm a generous guy, but I'm going to take this one. And thus, previously on Excalibur. After getting in a fight with Nightcrawler over a sexy dream Kurt had about Megan, Brian Braddock, that's Captain Britain of 616, was put on trial on Otherworld, the center of the multiverse and the home of the Captain Britain Corps, along with Roma, formerly Merlin before his apparent death, and Saturnine. While he was there, Captain Britain punched a whole lot of people. But then Roma, uh, she is the daughter of the wizard Merlin and the ruler of the multiverse, pardoned him. However, back on Earth, the mysterious and magical emotional metamorph Megan was sick of Brian's bullshit and left to figure out who she really was, hopefully by finding her birth parents. In that quest, she was accompanied by Rachel Summers, Phoenix, who was likewise curious about who she really was, in her case, behind the Phoenix Force, and also because she was a generally good bro. Along the way, Rachel realized that the Phoenix Force was disconnecting her from humanity and was keeping her complicated time-traveling memory scrambled. So she shut it off, relying only on her own mutant psychic powers. They didn't find Megan's parents, but they did find Onuri, one of the psychic yetis from Wolverine Bloodlust, along with an illusory werewolf and Dracula. The Nuri showed Megan that she was really a beautiful elfin alien energy creature, but she was used to her usual form, so reverted to that after the lesson in self-realization. 
Meanwhile, Kitty Pride, that shadow cat, went off with her crush, Professor Alastair Stewart of the Weird Happenings Organization, to Ireland to investigate an archaeological site. There, they found a cubicle chamber deep underground, with a humanoid figure moving around in it. More on that later. Like, a lot more. Left behind to nurse a broken leg, Kurt Wagner, Nightcrawler, ended up babysitting the delightful alien bounty hunters TechNet who were stuck on Earth after being abandoned by their leader, Gatecrasher. Under Nightcrawler's tutelage, they turned into a well-oiled, or at least reasonably oiled, superhero team called the N-Men, who investigated a series of thefts of artifacts from museums, eventually finding and defeating the invisible demon perpetrator. Also investigating were Inspector Di Thomas of Scotland Yard and his new police psychic, Amelia Witherspoon. Also, also investigating, British Intelligence Division FI-6, led by Brigadier Theodore Inky Blot, and including the size-changing mutant, Micromax. After returning triumphant to the lighthouse, Kurt encountered feline sword and sorcery hero Kylun, a boy from Earth-616, whom Widget had teleported to the temporarily accelerated Erath, that's Earth-148, back in Excalibur number 2, and who, now grown up and badass, had chased the evil wizard Necrom from 148 to 616. Kurt also met the fuchsia-clad space lady Cerise, who got accidentally stuck on Earth, and doesn't seem to have anything better to do than to stick around. I am kind of glad that this storyline is ending with these issues. These previous lands are getting really long. Oh, uh, wait till we get the Peters on the team. Oh boy, there is that. Okay, so that's where we find ourselves. We are now two-thirds of the way through Alan Davis's first sort of nine-issue storyline in Excalibur. Now, that's not to say that it's going to clean up every little plot point, or the plot points introduced in this storyline won't be used later. But these nine issues really do form one big arc. And with number 50, we have a hell of a climax, not just to Alan Davis's current run on the book, but honestly, to the entire book so far. Now, whether that's earned or whether it's not, whether all of the retcons that tie everything back together, back to Excalibur number one, even back to The Sword is Drawn, are sort of a fair use of retroactive continuity. I mean, we'll talk more about that later, and I'm sure you listeners will have your own opinions. That is absolutely not what fair use means. Not, not fair use, fair use, like lowercase fair use. <sighs> this is why we can't have nice things. Specifically, this is why we can't have public domain or explicitly textually referenced while not re but not reproduced nice things. Nah, pedant. Yeah, that's kind of my job, man. <laughs> that it is. What, what, do you what do you think we do on this podcast? Uh, lots of things. I like to yell a lot, personally. I like to talk about penis bones sometimes. Okay, so the way the recording and uh, posting schedule is for episodes, we just posted, as we record this, the Brood Trouble and the Big Easy episode, and I didn't realize how many times I said penis bone that, in that episode. Like, probably as many times as I've said in the rest of my life combined. I hope you're happy in the life you've chosen for yourself. I mean, you know, it's working out. Because of penis bones. You can actually buy those in tourist shops in Alaska. I assume you mean you can buy the penis bones of other creatures rather than ones that you yourself can incorporate into your being. Although, I guess you technically, it could be both. That probably is a bad idea. I'm not going to speculate. I just know that you can buy penis bones in tourist shops in Alaska. What we all do with that information is left up to the individual. I just want you to follow your heart. <laughs> I mean, we were talking about a different organ, really. Anyway, how did we even get on this topic? Okay, it's my fault. Maybe we should just move on to Excalibur number 48, Irish Stew. We open at a monastery in Ireland where two monks, the elderly brother Francis, and the young, pale, and somewhat elfin Farron, both clad in green, discuss the poetry of William Butler Yeats and the passions that inspired it. 
Now, Farron, we learn, has lived at this monastery his entire life. He is the last of 1,000 generations of Farrens awaiting the rise of the anti-Phoenix. And uh, he is kept pure by perpetually levitating with his feet wrapped in, in skins. Um, and as soon as his feet touch the ground, he's going to inherit the powers of the first antediluvian Farron, which will summon the Phoenix Force to him. And I really love this bit, the idea that this person, you know, as soon as he touches the ground, he's going to have this gigantic fiery explosion of cosmic power. And so therefore, the obvious solution is just to float in lotus position all the time. Like, I don't know, I really appreciate fantasy worlds, or at least sections of fantasy worlds in this case, where magic is just the assumed default, and that's the obvious solution to problems like this. Okay. First of all, he comes from a long line of wizards. Mm-hmm. Second, was I the only one who who kind of thought of Fierce Invalid's Home from Hot Climates? I don't know why I didn't. That's one of my favorite Tom Robbins books, and it's also one of the only ones that doesn't adhere to the Tom Robbins formula, which I both appreciate and am a little disappointed by. But um, yeah, listeners, if you haven't read Tom Robbins, do. And if you haven't read Fierce Invalid's Home from Hot Climates, I recommend it. Qualifier, Tom Robbins is probably not for any, everyone, and that's okay, and that's worth knowing. Um, his stuff has a lot of the issues you'd kind of expect of books written by a guy who really romanticizes female sexuality. But at the same time, they tend to be pretty fun. So, you know, you do you. And to be fair, I haven't read read one in many, many years, but I liked them back in the day. Anyway, Tom Robbins very much aside. So, yeah, Farron. Farron is sort of the final uh, new member of the core Excalibur cast that Alan Davis has been building. That's something we've seen with Kylan coming onto the book, with Cerise, even to a degree with Micromax, and Farron is kind of the, the final member there. He is sort of a jerk, and he's really great, and I like him despite the fact that he's terrible. Let's be fair. Micromax is not part of the core anything. Well, the thing is, he was going to be. Like, I don't know if uh, Alan Davis just didn't have a chance to be on the run for as long as he thought he would be, even though he's on for quite a few issues after this. Or if his initial plans didn't end up uh, be, being the ones he went with. But according to the trading cards, which during this era were one of my main windows into what was up with X-Men, like, Micromax was a big deal. <laughs> well, uh, Miles? Yes? Those trading cards lied sometimes. You know that, right? They did, it's true. Uh, they said that Gambit's last name was Boudreau, and that was really just uh, Belladonna's last name, and then they just sort of made up powers for Maverick because the character's powers hadn't been determined yet. But still, they were awesome, and I still have my collection, and they still make me very happy. The point is, the fact that Ma- Micromax was emphasized in them really just means that Ma- Micromax was emphasized in the trading cards, which, you know, is a good thing to know, but not necessarily indicative of literally anything else. I think as a child, I posited a universe where all of the Marvel creators were really on the same page and they had this grand design that they were all working together in lockstep toward. Like, reading about the utter editorial chaos with writers and artists coming and going and plot lines being dropped and never returned to and retcons that didn't fully make sense, as an adult doing this podcast, I think young Miles would have been very disappointed to learn that his creators were not, in fact, infallible. Were you one of those kids who also believed that adults were, like, functionally omniscient? Oh, no, not at all. Not adults, just, you know, comics creators. Okay, so you, so you just channeled all of that faith into, into your sense of how Marvel Comics worked. Basically that, yeah. That is, that has to have led to some, some, some rude atheist awakenings there. Uh, there's been some disillusionment here and there, it's true. But anyway, as Farron and Brother Francis are discussing philosophical stuff and being kind of awesomely greenly dressed, Excalibur 
And also Cerise and Kylan, who, uh, like we said in the previous land, they don't really have anywhere else to be. Like, they're not members of the team, but they don't know anybody on this planet except Excalibur. So they're coming along. They'll land. You know, look, they're they're basically members of the team at this point. You really just have to show up to be on Excalibur. Does that mean we could show up and we could be on Excalibur? I want to be on Excalibur. Yeah, probably. Oh, okay. Well, uh, maybe after this episode. Um, anyway, Excalibur Plus lands in Ireland to answer Kitty's summons. And I gotta say, I really dig how Rachel, who, like we mentioned, has turned off the Phoenix Force at this point, is just dressed like a person. She's got this black leather shorts and jacket and top combo that just looks very casual, but also in Rachel Summers' tradition, extremely, extremely stylish. I love the extent to which... Rachel, and really, honestly, all of the characters Alan Davis draws have their own sense of fashion and their own look. Like, you can tell them apart by the clothing they choose and the ways that they wear it. And that's something that's that was, I think, really rare in comics at this point in time. You know, you saw people drawn in, in outfits that people thought looked cool or were sexy, but you didn't really see the kind of emphasis that you do today on characters having really individualistic fashion sense. I think it was sort of per character back in the day because I'm thinking of Storm, for instance, and a lot of the time she was drawn wearing stuff that Storm would wear. Now, that's not always the case. In the early 90s, she has some really generic civilian outfits. But for the most part, like I'm thinking specifically of her going through Harlem back in the late 70s or early 80s and just looking, even though she wasn't dressed as a a superhero at all, which was kind of rare for her back then, still very much like Aurora. Okay, be fair, you could dress... Aurora Monroe up as Mickey Mouse, and if she were being drawn by the right artist, she would still look regal as fuck. That is a good point. Reason number 475, that Halle Berry was not a good choice for her, because while Halle Berry, I'm sure, could be regal, she didn't play Storm that way in the movies, and that made me very, very sad. Yes. Anyway, speaking of outfits, when Rachel's asked about this, she points out that uh, she actually can't get into her usual costume without the uh, Phoenix Force's enhanced psionic powers, which makes sense. I mean, A, there aren't any zippers, and B, I mean, look at that thing. I really love that bit of trivia. I think I've alluded to it before, but the running joke of Rachel's costume is impossible for anyone who's not telekinetic is a lovely nod to its its genuine deep impracticality. I actually, I, I can't remember whether I mentioned this on the show. I made that costume once for Halloween um, in college, the, the red hound costume. And it was, in fact, tremendously difficult to construct anything that looked remotely, remotely accurate to the page. So once everybody does their turns on the catwalk, they come up with a plan. Kitty and Rachel are going to phase down together using Kitty's mutant power to, well, phase and Rachel's non-Phoenix telepathy to figure out where the hell they're going, and the rest of Excalibur will use their punching and blasting and stuff like that to dig a tunnel down to the chamber. And as soon as they start, something goes wrong. Rachel and Kitty land in the chamber, and suddenly, Rachel is back in days of future past with Franklin Richards and the other old X-Men fighting Sentinels. She finds out that the time travel from Uncanny X-Men number 141, or I guess X-Men number 141, because that was the last issue before they changed the title, didn't work. Apparently, nothing that has happened to Rachel Summers since then was real. I mean, Kate Pride is there, and she's old, and she's dead. Rachel's life up to that point has been imaginary, has been a hallucination. Um, She is back in her original timeline. Sentinels kill Storm and Colossus, and Franklin begs Rachel to unleash unleash the Phoenix Force. 
yeah, they're in front of a sudden mutant graveyard background. I mean, it's very clear. Obviously, we the readers know that Marvel's not going to like undo hundreds of issues of continuity across the various books, but it's impressively disorienting. And one of the things I really like about it is that it looks like it used to. I mean, this is Alan Davis's art, but he's drawing that old sort of androgynous, very thin, very young Rachel Summers. And that's, I think, one of the highlights of the story is seeing Alan Davis just draw all these iconic little bits of X-Men history in his inimitable style. It, it's really cool. I like it. Yeah, and Davis is, Davis is good enough at getting just bits and pieces of those original artists' styles that the, the characters are very recognizable, not only, as, not, not only for their original appearances, but for their original visual contexts. There's a catch to this, though. Franklin is telling Rachel that he has to unleash the Phoenix Force. But Rachel didn't have the Phoenix Force back in 141, did she? No, not at all. And just as she realizes this, because Rachel is as clued in as the readers are, suddenly she's dressed as a maid, and she has her hands around boring villain Celine's neck at the Hellfire Club. Logan is here too, but he's different. That's right, this is Uncanny X-Men number 205. We've gone from 141 to 205, where Rachel almost killed Celine, and then Wolverine stabbed her through the gut with his claws to prevent her from doing so, because, as we know, the only thing that fixes murder is more murder. This Logan, however, has an entirely different take on the whole prospect of, of murdering Celine. He tells Rachel... She deserves to die. Go ahead, girl. You know it's what you want. Turn on the Phoenix power and burn the witch. And Rachel realizes this isn't right. Something or someone is in her head and they're trying to trick her into activating the Phoenix force. She also mentions to Logan when she's protesting this whole thing that she now thinks that he was right to stop her from killing Celine. Like, okay, Rachel, I agree that you probably shouldn't have murdered Celine. Well, I like, I half agree and I half don't because Celine is really, really terrible. But dude, Wolverine stabbed you through the gut for something you didn't even do. I think it's probably safe to say that Rachel is a fairly unreliable narrator. Um, and also that her priorities when it comes to her own well-being may not be exactly on point. Anyway, once it's clear that Rachel isn't falling for this, which, I mean, to be fair, very few people with any sort of intelligence would, although, I don't know, maybe the emotional res resonance is super impressively done. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's, that's what's, what's implied, that, that it is, it's pulling on things and events and memories that it knows were emotionally overwhelming to the point that they might very reasonably disorient her. But I do really enjoy that once the force behind all this realizes it's not working, he just goes into full-on cordial smarmy mode as a giant goddamn flaming head appears in front of her. Wait, is this Nazi Charles Xavier? No, and I feel great about that because I believe, in fact, this arc has, at least this portion of this arc, I'll take what I can get, has no Nazis. And I always appreciate it when there are not Nazis, unless they're getting punched, in which case, I mean, they at least have a purpose then. No, you know what? I think no Nazis are even better than Nazis getting punched. I mean, that makes some sense. Yeah. But this not Nazi Charles, Charles Xavier. Uh, uh, not Nazi, not Charles Xavier. Yes, this not Nazi, not Charles Xavier, actually somebody else, sort of identifies himself. I am the rightful host to the Phoenix. Forgive my deceptions. When I sensed the Phoenix was trapped within you, I assumed you had evil intent. Now I understand your mind was too fragile to contain the majesty of the Phoenix. 
Relinquish it to me, and your memory will be instantly restored. So I really enjoy this, because this character's like, okay, well, I, I wasn't able to manipulate you. Maybe if I talk down to you really hard, that'll work instead. Also, maybe smile. You'd look so pretty if you just smiled once in a while. Oh god, he totally is that kind of guy, isn't he? Yes. Well, anyway... As this flaming figure is tipping his fedora, Captain Britain and Megan in a badger form are digging a great big hole to this big chamber as Cerise makes a coherent light tube, because remember, that's her mutant power. She can make coherent light, which is to say, basically cool-looking telekinesis, to sort of dump the dirt topside. And at that point, the flaming figure just bursts forth and flies out into the sky. He is not the only one to emerge onto the scene at this point because a group of monks carry Theron out into the rain and set him down on the ground bare feet first. Thrum, thrum, crackoom! There are some really good sound effects here. Ah, uh, thunder crashes. He doesn't just yell that. Well, uh, right, sound effects. Not like, you know... Although, again, I'll keep coming back to it, there is an issue of Squirrel Girl where she says that Wolverine does in fact say the word snicked whenever he pops his claws. So that's kind of canonical. Damn Skippy. I, Farron, call on the Cosmic Phoenix and implore its aid to extinguish this evil... But the Phoenix... Already has a host, so no dice, kiddo. Yeah, I would say poor kid, but he turns into a total jerk, but still kind of, I mean, poor kid. He was raised for this for many, many, many generations. Like, this is why they all existed. This is why he's lived away from the world and he's had to sit in lotus position floating above the ground his whole life, so... And as we all know, the characters of Excalibur really lack basic communication skills. You would think that the monks could coordinate with someone. You would, yeah. Especially with Otherworld, oh my god. Do they really? Oh yeah, I guess they do have a connection to Otherworld. We'll get to that later. Yeah, they do. Well, anyway, everyone's made terrible decisions, so Farron can't do what he's supposed to do. He's got no Phoenix Force, he's just a regular old wizard. Thankfully, Excalibur dives into help, because the fire guy has summoned these Jack Kirby-looking rock monsters. Sorry, just a regular old wizard? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and... Excalibur tries to dive into help, but they are no match for the rock monsters. That is until Kylan joins the fray, because Kylan knows who they're fighting and what these are. This is the work of Necrom, and Kylan may not have a lot of Earth 616 skills, but damn does he know how to fight some Necrom. A physical attack on the earth and rock is futile. It is merely the medium used by disembodied demonic force to gain physical effect. The enchanted swords of Zizria can dissipate the motivating force. And then, these fiendish creatures will be rock and mud once more. Kylan is very good at a specific skill that I think of as heroic exposition which is describing what you're doing in enough detail for other people to pick up and join you doing it, and for the reader to understand it, while doing the thing extremely heroically, and describing it dramatically enough that no one quite notices that you've just done a massive exposition dump. And that's one of the things I really enjoy about Kylan. Because he comes from another setting with its own sort of mood and tone, because he comes from sci-fi fantasy sword and sorcery, he brings that with him. And that means that we get the narrative conventions of those genres crammed into our superhero comic. And it's wonderful. And I love Kylan, and I wish he hadn't been totally forgotten about for most of X-Men history. Yeah, he's delightful. Speaking of people who can say their own sound effects... Unfortunately, by the time they've stopped the rock monsters, the flame guy, Necrom, is long gone, and Farron is 
furious in ways that only a very petulant te teenager who has been raised in a monastery and told that his life has only one possible purpose can be. Yeah, the phoenix was supposed to be his. Nobody, not him, not Brother Francis, not the other green-clad monks, uh, I guess mainly just them, anticipated that the phoenix would have chosen someone else, let alone somebody who rejected its power, because it's very clear when this flame guy attacked, Rachel didn't flare out a big phoenix force and annihilate it from existence. She didn't do anything with the phoenix force. It is suppressed right now, and that infuriates Farron even more. They also promised him a car when he turned 16. But again, this, this bugs me because there was a very visible Phoenix host on Earth for a fairly long time whom none of them seemed to have noticed. Like, even before Rachel. Here's my theory. So we do know that Farron and his ancestors, all of whom were also named Farron, um, they've been waiting for a very, very long time and they've had to stay isolated from the world in order for things not to get fucked up. Like, I, I get the impression it's not just that his feet can't touch the ground, but it's that if he's exposed to the world in a more metaphorical sense as well, that's also bad. So... Maybe they just had really thick blackout curtains and only opened the door when they absolutely had to, and they had their food delivered by whatever the 1992 equivalent of Amazon grocery delivery is, and so they just didn't notice the giant firebirds or galactuses that were hanging out, you know, over the last 20 years. That doesn't work, though, because the thing is, you've got to get new monks from somewhere. They don't reproduce parthenogenically or asexually, as far as I know. We don't know that. That's true. I don't know many monks, but as far... I, I have been led to believe... <laughs> that monks must repopulate periodically from um, the general population. And so presumably some of those folks would have had some exposure to that world before choosing to fuck off to a monastery. Okay, that's a really good point. I don't really have a uh, rebuttal to that. So instead, I will revise my theory as, as far as what's going on to say that Farron has also realized that this doesn't make any sense, and that just adds to his general frustration with the whole situation. Yeah, no, he's been, he's the kid who's been told that the world works a very specific way, and that if he follows those rules, he will get a thing, and not only has he discovered that the world doesn't work in the way he's been told, but that the thing he's been offered is, it does not belong to the people who said they'd give it to him. Huh. I feel like he would have a lot of sympathy for those kids that looked at the comic book ads back in the 60s and tried to sell grit. Or, or tried to, like, order a monkey. Yeah, x-ray specs, whatever. No, no, the thing is, um, the people who ordered monkeys via comic ads, some of them actually got monkeys. How did, how did that go? Uh, the monkeys were generally not alive by the time they arrived. That makes me sad on a very deep level. It should, it's fucking horrible. But, um, also really deeply bizarre. True. Okay, if anybody's listening to this podcast who used to send people dead monkeys back in the 1960s, shame on you. I hope you're a better or person now. now. Don't, don't send people dead monkeys. Don't send people monkeys anyway, because everything that, that, that you've heard about not giving pets as gifts goes double for monkeys, because they will actually, for real, 100% bite your face off. Like, the first facial transplant recipient um, had a pet ship, and that's why she needed a facial transplant. And also, don't mail monkeys. Monkeys are good. They should be raised in monkey-appropriate habitats and environments. I have a friend who works at a chimp rescue. It's pretty cool. That sounds kind of rad, but I do want to make an exception for scientific purposes because I feel like there would be a number of scientific reasons to mail dead monkeys, but I hope there's like a procedure for this, like, you know, special packaging and stuff. There is, yeah, and presumably those monkeys are dead when they're mailed. These, these monkeys presumably were not, that's the issue. It, it wasn't send in, you know, two proofs of purchase and ten bucks for a dead monkey. It was, that, that, that was not the advertisement. <laughs> but what if it was? <laughs> Okay, anyway, uh, point being, monkeys very much aside, 
So Brother Francis explains to Excalibur what's up. Excalibur needs to destroy the Anti-Phoenix, which is apparently the actual nature and name of the flame guy that we saw, before it merges with its creator, or else basically the whole world is super fucked. And he begs them to take Farron with them, presumably because he's really sick of dealing with him. And I think we should actually read the quote, because as a, as a console RPG fan, I love this. Please take Farron with you. His mystical ability will benefit your cause. Farron joined the party. So our newly gigantic team heads off to the Excalibur Lighthouse slash Mushroom to use its technology to track the Anti-Phoenix. Everyone is even more impressed than they already were with Kylan's battle prowess at this point, and they are trying to guess what his mutant power might be. Um, they think, you know, maybe it's, it's a healing factor, or it's improved dexterity, or it's improved strength. It is none of those things. Kylan's mutant power, as it turns out, is that he can re reproduce any sound. That's right, he can talk in sound effects. Shadowcat asks for an example. How about that huge whack when Brian hit the rock creature? You mean... Then the rocks reformed. Then Megan screamed and a rock creature thumped Brian. <coughs> then Cerise blasted the creatures. And I love this because the sound effects are all in different colors and fonts that really feel like their sounds. And afterward, there's this great reaction shot of Kylan looking kind of sheepish and worried and everybody else with their mouths just hanging open. And it's perfect because it's such an unexpected juxtaposition. There's this badass Leonin fantasy warrior, and he just basically did like a little kid who was telling you about the latest issue of G.I. Joe, and it's amazing. It's, okay, Kylan's powers are great, and I love them so much. Yup. He's, you know, we, we think of badass characters always having badass powers, and Kylan is just a badass entirely independent of his powers, which is something I really dig and something I wish we could see more of. I mean, actually, I think, I think Kitty's got a lot going for her on that front, too. Like, her, her badassitude in fights involves some use of her powers, but largely involves having trained real hard to kick ass. Yup, exactly that. So, after this delightful interlude, Excalibur gets back to the Excalibur Mushroom, and find it surrounded by dozens of headless robot bodies, as is the interior once they get in. Widget has had a really productive week. He has. Remember, the last arc that we covered, he was making himself a rudimentary robot body that Technet made fun of. Apparently, he's been getting better and better, and he's been stripping everything in sight for parts. The Nazi train that Excalibur got back in the cross-time caper... Oh, goddammit, there are Nazis in this arc, kind of. Well, just that. It's been reduced to... No, there are. There's a cannibalized leftover Nazi train that is no longer a Nazi train because it's pieces of a bunch of robot bodies. Uh, yes. Okay, that's a definite improvement. And they find, after seeing dozens and dozens of these things, the new and maybe improved widget. Widget looks different. Jay, how would you describe Widget's new appearance? Widget looks like a very silvery um, Nimrod. Kind of. It's that same sort of technology, but where Nimrod is all angles, like he's made of some sort of futuristic crystal technology, Widget only has certain parts of itself that are solid. Yeah, he's got He's actually, you know, Widget, Widget is, he's also got kind of an Art Deco aesthetic. Like, it's a, he's a very Fritz Lang robot at this point. Ooh, yeah. And he's, he's really, he's, he's, he's got a head and he's sort of standing upright um, with a trapezoidal body that just sort of dissolves into ether as it, as it goes down. 
Yeah, it's like the only solid parts are the shoulder and head pieces of widget, and interestingly enough, the fingertips. Everything else is this translucent kind of gradienty, screen savory looking trapper keeper texture. He's a good boy. He is. Now, I first saw, to go back into trading cards, Widget's new look on a trading card, and I saw that as I was reading the early Claremont Excalibur, where Widget was basically like a metallic robot Kermit the Froghead, I was very, very confused, but it just made me want to read more to see how we got from point A to point very different B. Did it occur to you that they might just have gotten it terribly wrong? Uh, no, because Thomas traders, as previously discussed, were infallible and perfect, and I could count on them even as my life fell apart bit by bit. This is this is turning kind of dark. I gotta bring this up in therapy next time. There's some deep stuff going on here. Anyway, so according to UncannyXMen.net, this was, in fact, initially a different design. So you're kind of right there, Jay. Both this new widget and Cerise's design were actually going to be used by Alan Davis in a DC series that he was working on that never ended up happening. So he reused the designs for Excalibur. This is, as you may recall, a time-honored tradition, and it is, in fact, the specific time-honored tradition that brought us the Shi'ar Imperial Guard and the Star Jammers via Dave Cockrum's discarded pitches. And for that matter, also Storm and Nightcrawler, they were going to be part of a DC project that Cockrum was part of. And I mean, these are such iconic characters now. Well, okay, to be fair, Storm is a fair bit more iconic than Cerise. I feel like Cerise, if she'd had more of a chance, maybe she would have been, but whatever. No, no one's ever going to be as iconic as Storm, sorry. Okay, well, maybe Nightcrawler would. No, he's really iconic no. as well. God damn, Cockrum did some good designs. Yeah. Well, anyway, for now, in this reality, our reality, they are Excalibur characters. Now, as all of this is going on, Rachel suddenly falls back into a psychic trance and sees something happening very far away, something quite significant, and based on what Brother, Brother Francis said, quite unfortunate. Right, she's picturing Necrom. He's in an elaborate arcane sigil, disrobing as the anti-phoenix arrives, inhaling its fire and leaving a dusty human husk where its original form once was. And as she sees this, she can feel that Necrom is in fact now on his way to her with the full powers of the anti-phoenix. And the cover to Excalibur number 49, Let There Be Dark, really gets that across. Because we see a gigantic Necrom crushing the logo as smaller Excalibur figures fight him. This is, in fact, an homage to Uncanny X-Men number 135's cover, where Dark Phoenix was doing the same thing, which itself was an homage to the cover of X-Men number 56, where the living monolith was doing the same thing. And that's how you spin gold from straw. <laughs> yup. So, we cut to the London docks, where FI6 and their ESP unit, called Espers, but E, S, and P are uppercase and the rest is lowercase. I always, I always love that little thing. Um, they've tracked Necrom here. They've realized that Necrom was behind the force that was stealing all the artifacts that they were investigating. And the brigadier of FI6, that's Theobald Inky Blot, he sends in his armed and armored mediators, as he euphemistically calls them, to figure out what's up. He's not going to send Micromax in because Micromax done fucked up last time, and that was sort of a black mark for them. In fact, Inky Blot mentions that Nigel Orpington Smythe, great name there, uh, of the RCX, that's the Resource Control Executive, remember them from the old Captain Britain series? I love them. Uh, Smythe, Orpington Smythe has proposed that FI6 be merged into the RCX, so, you know, it's kind of a big deal for FI6 to look good on this case. And alas, we get some introduction to the mediators and their qualifications, which is a pretty good way to know that you shouldn't get too attached. For instance... 
Lance Corporal Andrew Hodge is a skilled fighter, 7th Don Karate Black Belt, Master at Arms, six years in the Marines, four in the SAS. But he is still merely a man, suddenly painfully aware of his own mortality. Because Necrom, now very beefy, very naked, and very green, and still looking kind of like Mr. Burns from The Simpsons, just grabs everybody by their faces and sucks out their life force, and they fall as these desiccated husks one by one. And Alan Davis's art always looks very pretty, but he can do horror quite, quite well. And that's something he does here, especially coupled with their narration, especially knowing a little bit about Lance Corporal Andrew Hodge. I mean, I'm surprised we didn't even learn about his family or the fact that he was going to get married the next day or something. Miles, with that last name, I think we can probably assume that he's not in touch with his family. Oh, uh, yeah, good point. That's for the best. Well, it's uh, not a problem for him anymore. And everything blows up. The building and the docks that the mediators went into to find Necrom, the espers themselves burst into flame, and they start getting all desiccated and, you know, dead. Everything is going to shit, and Necrom is just grabbing people by their faces left and right and killing them one after another after another. He is demolishing FI6. Like, okay, this is a naked bald man with Dalzim-like stretchy arms that he uses to reach out to grab people, and he's still terrifying. I think that's part of what makes him work so well, is that he doesn't give a shit about looking imposing. That is not relevant to him. He just gives a shit about being effective. If there's anything that the Marvel Universe has learned from Apocalypse, it's to never underestimate naked bald men with stretchy arms. Apocalypse isn't naked. He at least has a belt. It's got his initial on it, in case he loses it. Bald men with stretchy arms, then. They don't have to. Naked or otherwise. Thank you for the clarification. Anyway, Micromax bursts forth from the wreckage to try to confront Necrom and save Brigadier Inky Blot. It doesn't work so well. Blot is killed, and Micromax is seemingly zapped into oblivion as well. Wah, wah. Okay, we should we should probably say Micromax is not actually dead. He's he's shrunk to escape. We'll we'll see him again soon. He's fine. I know all of you were deeply invested in the fate of Micromax. I think his name is Scott. Maybe his name is Scott. I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of Scots out there. Yeah. Well, anyway, Necrom at that point, having accomplished his task, having destroyed all of FI6 and used their life forces to fuel himself to be, you know, extra powerful, in addition to having the anti-Phoenix, he heads to the tower that crosses time to claim the Phoenix Force. Now, back at that tower, we have our nine main characters, not even counting Widget or Lockheed, gathering to try to figure out what the hell to do. Rachel is still really shaken. Necrom projected his slaughter of FI6 into her mind, and Farron is not helping matters. The blood of his victims is on your hands. You could have stopped Necrom from joining with the power of the Anti-Phoenix. Shadowcat's got no time for this. Hey, you've got no right to say that. All you've done so far is get rescued by us. Still, Farron remains kind of sympathetic. I mean, he may be a little shit, but he's our little shit. Miles? I guess that didn't come out right. Oh, crap, I guess that didn't come out right. Oh, crap! Oh, oh. Anyway, no sooner has Farron teenagered all over the room than... They are interrupted by a cross-time intrusion. We've seen these before. We know that this tower intersects with all of the other versions of the lighthouse, but the points of intersection are getting much larger, much longer, and much better realized. Uh, right now, we've got a giant king versus the uh, Caliburians. This is Captain Saxonia, Spider-Girl, a blue ponytail Doctor Strange, and the Hulk, who are, are fighting their battle outside. 
These are great. I love these. These feel like those little bits in the cross time caper where we just got glimpses of Excalibur running through other universes. I just love the Hulk's line here. Avast, teammates. While you blether, King be intent to toast mine Hulkish buns. Mine Hulkish buns, Jay. Avast. So, it's plan time amid all this madness. Kurt takes charge. He's, I guess, still riding high on the whole end men situation, realizing that, hey, he can be a decent leader. Yay, leadership skills. So here's what they're going to do. Alistair and Kylan are going to stay with the strange new widget and his assorted discarded bodies, um, respectively, because Alistair wants the science angle and because Kylan refuses to abandon widget because widget did not abandon him in his hour of loneliness and need as a kid. Kylan is such a good guy. He's such a good guy. I mean, maybe the swords of Zizria could be better used elsewhere, but I gotta say, I'll take heart over judgment every time. Megan, Cerise, and Farron are gonna make them all some snacks because they're hungry. Farron hates this plan so much. Farron hates snacks. Kurt, Kitty, Rachel, and Captain Britain, they're gonna come up with a battle plan. And, and Kurt first takes a moment to sum up the current situation in the book. So much coincidence, and so many new faces. And Excalibur is noticing something that the readers are probably also noticing at this point, which is that this battle feels really climactic, and they're starting to wonder whether this is the battle they were formed to fight, if this is somehow their purpose come to fruition. Right, because Roma did mention that all of the manipulations from first Merlin with Captain Britain and then her with Excalibur were leading up to this one upcoming mysterious battle, and yeah, this one really seems like it fits the bill. And it's coming up fast. Um, they've still got TechNet's gear, because TechNet just ditched it when they left with the special executive, and their computer is saying that Necron is going to be on site in under an hour. Rachel says this time she will activate the Phoenix Force to stand and fight, but the others won't have it. They say they've got it. There's no need for her to sacrifice her memory that she's been rebuilding with the Phoenix Force dormant, and there's also no need to risk the Phoenix being taken by Necrom and the Anti-Phoenix. Yeah, there's an additional risk to Rachel manifesting the Phoenix that I think it's really important to remember, and it's not just a question of will this affect Rachel, it's the fact that her keeping the Phoenix down is to an extent keeping it safe from Necrom for now. Now, Brian is, is dealing with some other challenges. He has suddenly become much clumsier than usual. He is banging into door frames all over the place. He assumes it must be because when TechNet rebuilt the lighthouse, they made the doors lower, but no one else is having problems. Yeah, I mean, there was the blunder jinx that Roma admitting to put, admitted to putting on Brian to make sure that he worked with Excalibur, but that's gone, right? And he trusts Roma. He trusts Roma, but at the same time, when he tries to type, the keyboard crumbles under his fingers, so there's something up. We just don't know what yet. Meanwhile, in the kitchen... Farron is really, really not into making snacks. He is fundamentally opposed to making snacks, he is fundamentally opposed to hanging out with ladies, and he's generally fundamentally opposed to everything that isn't him claiming the Phoenix Force and saving the world. Cerise, meanwhile, is a fish out of water in a different way. She's confused by sausage. I mean, it's animal flesh, but how did it live like that with no limbs or internal organs or whatnot? But all of this comic glory is interrupted by another cross-time intrusion as a monstrous alternate universe Captain Britain chef appears in this terrifying kitchen full of various body parts and stuff, talking about how these three people must be from his nemesis Magmito's Brotherhood of Evil Vegetarians. I love this comic so much. 
Outside, as Widget and his two companions investigate the assorted robot bodies, another cross-time intrusion takes place. Kylan talks to seven different Alistairs, a Caesar, a Sheik, a wizard, a Scarface, a superhero, a dandy, and the regular version. Man, I... Davis, Muppet Chaos. Alan Davis is clearly just having so much fun. Like, this just detailed imaginative chaos that he does, it's kind of like the cross-time caper, but better because there's another actual story going on. Anyway, with all these cross-time intrusions making even, like, finishing sentences in the lighthouse pretty challenging, the characters all meet up and try to evacuate, but suddenly Captain Britain just starts growing and growing and growing. Like, he gets as big as Guido Caracelli. He gets as big as Strong Guy. He kind of looks like a Macy's Parade float version of himself. Yeah, okay, or, or maybe a very 90s version. Well, amid more cross-time intrusions, including Dino Steel versus Punisaur, and the Fantastic Four is the X-Men, and Black Bolt eating fast food, I guess, um, the floating head of Necrom appears and explains... Necrom is compressing the multiverse into a singularity through the lighthouses that link every world to every other world, and only the Phoenix Force can stop him. Hint, hint, maybe the Phoenix Force should come out and play. This is a really good climactic battle, and it's a really good way to set up the stakes, because we've got, obviously, the massive, well, they're probably not going to destroy the entire Marvel Universe, but massive stakes. We've got the team-level stuff, and we've got some really, really personal stuff in play here that we've come to care about pretty deeply, which brings us to the double-sized Excalibur number 50, Winner Loses All. Hey, we've got a new logo. Instead of having the old Excalibur, very British-looking logo with crossed swords as the X, we now have a kind of uh, very curved science fiction-y looking one. I like the old one. I really love the original Excalibur logo. It felt so so appropriate to the team and to the book. And this logo's not bad, but it's not nearly as distinctive. Like, it doesn't have as much personality, and it's not as specific to the series. Well, anyway, what is very specific to the series is the multiverse converging, and the intersections are getting stronger. Now, the team themselves hasn't been caught up in these two months much, and Cerise had determined earlier that that was because there was fourth dimension stabilization happening. They had assumed that Widget was its source, but Cerise determines that no, that's not the case. The stabilization is coming not from Widget, but from Rachel, who has apparently forgotten that her powers involve some degree of time manipulation, but is just now starting to remember now that she's been suppressing the phoenix. This made me very happy when it happened. I mean, one of the first things we learn about Rachel Summers is that she has that sort of time power. She was able to send Kate Pride's mind back in time into Kitty Pride's body in Days of Future Past. I mean, it makes sense, don't get me wrong, that she wouldn't remember that because, you know, her memories being messed up are a big part of her character uh, arc, her character storyline. But for it to come back now, it feels, I don't know, triumphant, I guess. It does. It feels triumphant, and it feels like, again, a callback to things that had largely been, if not forgotten, set aside within the comics and continuity. This is a writer saying, I did my homework, I found those lost threads, I picked them up, I'm patterning them into a tapestry. And it's one of those moments that I feel like, that as, as someone who tends to be a fairly character-focused reader, it's the kind of moment that I really love, that really feels like it's kind of in there for me. Because I do remember that stuff, and it always makes me so happy when someone else doesn't cares. You don't need that stuff for a good story. You don't need it for a good superhero story. But it's always really cool to see it pulled back in. And that's I think that's one of the great things about reading and about writing in 
a shared universe, like really long running shared universe superhero comics as a fan of that kind of minutiae is that you've got so many great weird bits and hooks to pull from. And Davis does that just beautifully. Completely, completely agreed and well said. Well, Excalibur decides it's now or never time to take the fight to Necrom. Unfortunately, they are currently stuck in the sub-basement of the lighthouse. Um, Cerise encloses them in a solid light sphere and gets them up into the lighthouse proper, but Kitty still can't phase them through the tower as outside Farron flies off to confront Necrom. Kylan follows him, and it just doesn't really work. Farron can sort of deflect Necrom's attacks, but it's obvious that he's not going to make any headway or even last for very long without the Phoenix Force. I really love the shattering mystical shield effect as Necrom zaps Farron. That's one of my favorite little Alan Davis things, the way he draws sorcery as almost these little holographic projections. Like everything's made of light, but it feels like solid light. And I think that's part of why I enjoy Cerise's power so much, because it's almost like we get to see a little mini sorceress duel every time she does anything. Yeah, man. Um, energy and how to represent it in comics is, is an ongoing argument and an ongoing consideration and something you see different trends in over time. And Davis kind of ushered in a, a new era of it in some very, very cool ways. So Farron's not going to get anywhere where Micromax and FI6 show up and are equally ineffectual. Cerise has managed to get out of the tower somehow just in time to save Micromax from getting uh, necromized. But the rest of Excalibur is still stuck. Um, the new guys are outside, but all of all of the Excalibur OGs, that's Shadowcat, Nightcrawler, Megan, Captain Britain, and Rachel are still stuck in the lighthouse, and they're trying to figure out what to do. They can't phase through the wall. Kitty's powers can't get them through the wall, but they are working. She can phase through other people. She just can't get through the lighthouse walls. Rachel's telepathy can't tell them what's going on either because it's still a mess. It's fritzing in and out because she's suppressing the phoenix and because there's interference from Necrom and the anti-phoenix. Megan, however is able to shift into her true form. That's the, her, her sort of alien fairy form, which lets her see energy. It lets her see specifically the Ultra. And that's when she notices that the confluence of multiversal energy that is the Ultra, it's concentrated in the lighthouse itself, in the lighthouse walls, and it's all flowing into Brian. That's why he's just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, there's something else going on too, but Megan can't figure that part out. And Kurt suggests that, well, maybe, you know, Rachel can identify it if, if she can connect them telepathically, but her, her telepathy is still not quite working. At which point, Alistair, who, ah, I forgot, Alistair is also in the lighthouse. I always feel bad about forgetting Alistair, but also it's kind of his job. Um, and with them, as always, is Garth. Ah, uh, ah, uh, oh, buddy. But no, um, so Alistair is there, and Alistair actually has a really good plan. He suggests that if Kitty phased Megan and Rachel together, that might bypass the telepathic static. Kurt thinks it's a good plan basically figures it's, it's time to play on the level of what's happening around them. This reality warp is violating the usual laws of physics. Perhaps we can too. It's just stupid enough to work. I am so okay with nonsense like this. This is the kind of thing where if you're running a role-playing game and your players do it, you're like, you know what? I had these other pages of notes, but fuck it. That's awesome and ridiculous and we're gonna roll some dice. Ultimately, Megan, Kurt, Rachel, and Kitty all end up merged together and... With, the, their, with their combined powers, get some additional insight. Yeah, I see it now. This is why Excalibur was formed. We each possess a unique ability that, under the right circumstances, 
combine to form an entity which is greater than the sum of the individuals. Kitty, a phaser to merge us physically, while Rachel links our minds. Kurt, a teleporter with an instinctive ability to navigate the complex layers of reality, and Megan, who can manipulate her form, the energy it contains. Captain Britain, meanwhile, is going to be the powerhouse. He'll provide the energy to halt the convergence. And Alistair will bring the power of heart. By their powers combined. Yeah. And also a monkey. Oh, crap. No, we don't want to talk about monkeys again. But... Yeah, essentially, it's that. They are merging all of their powers, and it's implied that this is why Excalibur was formed. This is why we have these five random Marvel superheroes, because they all had the powers to merge into one giant thing to fix this problem. Given the scope of their relevance now, given how far they have extended beyond their leader specifically's original mandate, would, would it be fair to say that he has, he has transcended being Captain Britain, that now he represents more... Perhaps the entire Earth becomes some sort of Captain Planet? And now that theme song is stuck in my head for the next six months. God damn it, Jay. Yeah, I, I, I have never seen the cartoon, so I, I don't know it. I can make Captain Planet references with impunity. The power is yours! Oh, you're immune. God damn. Anyway, using their combined powers, Excalibur does in fact swoop through the multiverse over to Roma's Starlight Citadel, where Merlin, who, oh, by the way, last issue, while Roma and Saturnine were kind of freaking out, they just saw Merlin, like, playing chess and being smug in the back of Roma's office, so that's a thing. Yeah, he's now explaining the plot quite thoroughly. I feel like given that, that Merlin goes to so much effort to explain exactly what's happening, we should just let him carry the torch on this one. Roma first has some questions of her own, though. Why did you deceive me, father? Could you not trust me? Trust was not the issue, Roma. It was essential that Necrom should believe I was dead. Who is Necrom? The Sorcerer Supreme of my race. I was his student. So too was the original Farron, the forebear of that hybrid upstart who now bears his name. It was Necrom who revealed to us the energy created by exchange of exotic particles at every dimensional interface, the doorways between worlds. And when a series of interfaces across the multiverse were aligned, the localized energy fields merged to create an energy matrix of awesome power. But the alignments were too brief and infrequent to be harnessed. Still, Necrom coveted the power and he was not to be denied. So it was, we traveled to Earth-616, the prime Earth, to the location of an imminent alignment. The interface was marked with a tower, erected to an elder god by a race that was ancient while Atlantis was young. Farron played a crucial role in Necrom's scheme. Decades of meditation and pious asceticism had allowed him to communicate with a celestial elemental, now known as the Phoenix. At the moment of alignment, Farron called on the Phoenix Avatar to project the essence of the tower through the multiverse, so that it existed on every plane of reality simultaneously, like a cosmic linchpin threaded through the multiverse. But Necrom had deceived us. The creation of an energy matrix was merely the first phase in a gambit to compress the alternate Earths into a singularity. The energy released by this destructive insanity would have endowed Necrom with the power of a god had he not made one fatal miscalculation. Farron, sustained by the Phoenix, resisted Necrom's mighty will. As they fought, I leapt into the seething cauldron of the energy matrix and was swept across the multiverse as I struggled to tame its fury. Necrom could have easily killed gentle Farron, but instead tore out the portion of the Phoenix Force that bonded his student to the Avatar, ensuring both would endure great suffering. 
In agonized confusion, the phoenix fled to the stars. Necrom bound the stolen phoenix force with a portion of his own life essence and left it to incubate in a corpse. The creation of the anti-phoenix was Necrom's first ploy in this current gambit. Then he vanished into the multiverse. Farron spent the rest of his life awaiting the rise of the anti-phoenix, hoping to atone for the pain he had caused the phoenix. His final act was to place his power in the earth to be claimed by his heir. In the meantime, I had mastered the energy matrix and established Otherworld. But always Necrom eluded me, so I created the core to patrol the multiverse, and I began a counter gambit. And Roma asks the question that's been on all of our minds, I think. Was all this deception really necessary? Could you not have repaired the energy matrix? To do so would have exposed me to an attack from Necrom. I had to guard myself. He is a powerful opponent. So you hid, feigning death while others defended your empire. Should I concern myself with the fate of a few mortals? I am Merlin. And now, the game is nearly done. The threat that Necrom posed is almost neutralized. I have proved my supremacy. You know, Dad, nobody is going to come visit you at the rest home. Merlin is such a douchebag, but this is also awesome, despite the fact that, dear God, that was a lot of exposition. Wow. Yeah, that's just straight from, that's straight from the comic. I, I transcribed all of that, and it is about a page and a half typed. I mean, Claremont ain't got nothing on this kind of exposition, but what we're seeing right here is the origin of the multiverse as we, uh, as we know it. The origin of Otherworld, the origin of the Captain Britain Corps. Everything is coming together to sell this conflict as the biggest deal Excalibur has ever seen, both the team and also the title itself. And I mean, if you're working in stuff that dates back to Alan Moore's work on Captain Britain and saying it's all been coming to a head here, A, that's awesome. B, you better freaking sell it, Davis. And boy, does he. So meanwhile, in the 616, Necrom uses Satine's reanimated corpse to try to get under Kylan's skin. This, you'll recall, is, is the Saturnine from Kylan's universe, with whom Kylan was in love and who was, who was cruelly killed by Necrom in their final confrontation. So total dick move. Total dick move. Necrom, the dick in question, needs to find the Phoenix Force ASAP. It is the only thing that can either cement his power or stop him. On Otherworld... Excalibur isn't sure whether or not they have actually saved the universe at this point or not. Spoiler, not yet. And I really love the unattributed conversation they're having within the giant Captain Britain, sort of lampshading the whole thing. That's it then. Yeah, we have saved the multiverse. Seems a bit of an anticlimax after the big buildup. Yeah, all this muscle and we didn't get to hit anyone. Necrom looms and... Rachel decides that the only way to take him is going to be to reclaim the Phoenix Force. The others are concerned that it'll destroy her memory forever. I mean, she's only been regenerating that memory because the Phoenix Force has been dormant. But I really like what she has to say. Your future is more important than my past, kiddo. I'm Phoenix. I accepted the power. Now it's time to prove I'm worthy of it. And does she ever, because the whole we didn't get to hit anyone complaint is answered in the most epic possible fashion. It is time for a goddamn solar system spanning dimensional cosmic space fight. Moons! He threw moons at me! He did! And then Necrom ignites a planet into a sun. Like, this is sort of the whole, uh, what was it called? Big Bang spell from Final Fantasy VII's last boss? Like, in comic book form. 
<laughs> oh god, that fucking spell. So I didn't have Knights of the Round when I got to the end, but I did have a lot of a lot of hit points. Which meant Sephiroth just cast this supernova. The spell was supernova. And he cast it so many times. And I just like get up and make popcorn and get a drink and do some chores and then come back and keep playing. I mean, you know, you could store a lot on a CD, so uh, I guess Square wanted to show it off back with FF7. Big Bang, I believe, was actually from FF4 when you fought either Zemus or Zeramus. Anyway, we digress. The point is, this fight is awesome. And I mean, Davis is just drawing these abandoned cities on planets that stretch off into the horizon, and just celestial bodies slamming into each other and slamming into Necrom and slamming into Rachel. It's really cool, and we cannot do it justice with words. Please check out the visual companion. Also, uh, Davis is careful to not repeat the mistake of John Byrne here. Um, you, you mentioned ruins. All of these planets are pointedly unpopulated. Exactly. So Phoenix realizes in a knockdown dragout space fight like this, they're too evenly matched. It's not going to work. And they're just going to keep destroying solar systems until they inevitably get to one that actually does have people in it. So she gets up close and personal, gets right in Necrom's face. And... What she realizes is the phoenix has a lot of power that's innate to the phoenix, sure. But what Necrom has missed is that the phoenix isn't just power. The phoenix is a conduit to power, to all of the elemental force of the universe. So she just channels all of that straight into Necrom until he explodes. I mean, it's kind of an easy out story-wise. Like, she's just giving Necrom what he wants, and it turns out he didn't think it through. But thematically, it works really well. As does the sacrifice that Rachel's making. What this actually reminded me of was when she almost destroyed the universe in Secret Wars 2 to take out the Beyonder. In a way, it's sort of an inversion of that. Or, in a way, it's sort of an inversion of, say, pushing your teammates aside and choosing to pilot a crashing space shuttle down through the atmosphere in the middle of a radiation storm. And so perhaps it's extremely appropriate that when Rachel rematerializes on Earth, unconscious, she's wearing the OG Green Phoenix costume. And the conflict is over. Rachel's comatose or something. Necrom is seemingly dead. And Merlin shows up. Everybody finds out he's still alive. And in fact, he was, you know, Murd, the old man from the possession. He's also was the wise Merlin of legend there. He was the one old Captain Britain playing chess with Brian in Otherworld. And it's clear at this point that Merlin was intent on not only stopping Necrom, but specifically on preserving the multiversal, multiversal energy for himself, because Merlin is a shitty person. The team, we find out, has some Subrosa telepathic conversations, and Megan absorbs the rest of the energy from Captain Britain and fires it into the lighthouse, destroying the tower and every version of the tower across every plane of reality. And the way this is shown, there's a single page panel, but it's divided into these little almost curved radial stripes like a sun is setting or like a tower is falling from being upright to horizontal. It, the, the panels get smaller and smaller as it goes, and it just gets across the scale of the multiverse, just the echoing and echoing and echoing of this destruction. This story in general does such a good job at feeling big, at feeling epic, at feeling really, really multiverse spanning. 
God, it does. One thing I appreciate, though, um, Jay, you mentioned that they avoided the uh, problem of the broccoli people from the Dark Phoenix saga. It's also briefly mentioned that Roma telepathically warned everyone in the multiverse in every one of the lighthouses to get clear before this happened. Um, so, in fact, no one was killed. I hope she stops by the director's cut of Man of Steel after this. But who would want to? I mean, Roma does believe in sacrifice. Anyway, Merlin's pretty pissed about this whole thing. I mean, his whole plan to get lots and lots of power that he's been working on for who knows how many thousands of years? Yeah, that ain't gonna happen now. So he leaves in a snit. Which is really satisfying. Um, And everyone else heads back to Braddock Manor for a closing joke about not being anyone's pawns, spoken while arrayed on a chessboard floor. Because apparently the courtyard of Braddock Manor is in fact a chessboard. It's nice though, I mean, because we know that Roma's manipulated people before, but it's just also a nice way of saying, hey, by the way, this ain't over. This ain't as clean as it looks. So I think we're running kind of long, but to briefly conclude, Jay, what do you think about this arc? What do you think about Alan Davis's first nine issues as a writer? I think Excalibur belongs to Alan Davis. There are writers and artists, there are creative teams who come into a title and continue it and are part of the title. And you don't really describe it as, as their you know, apostrophe S's, whatever. This is Alan Davis's Excalibur. You know, Davis's voice was a foundational part of what made Excalibur Excalibur, his, his voice as an artist. And I think here as a writer, he's elevating Excalibur into what I consider kind of its ideal form. I completely agree. I mean, for me, the Claremont Davis run is great, but this is core Excalibur. It's just so cohesive and perfect. And like, it's polished in a way that almost no other comics are. It just feels like everything is it's, it's in its exact right place, thematically, emotionally, action-wise, visually, like everything. Yeah, it's absolutely seamless. I mean, we talked about the length of that info dump, you know, Merlin's long, this is what happens speech. That's spread out over a handful of pages of comics. And it's compelling. The comics are compelling. And the comics are literally just accompanied by all of that damn text. Right? Oh, so good. And thankfully, while there will be some fill-ins, we have a fair bit more Davis. So that's cool. What we also have are listeners. And they've got questions. Sam asks via email, Hey guys, just curious if, how, when you plan to tackle alternate timelines and futures that are more or less what-if stories that happen completely independent of the main continuity and wouldn't come up in the normal course of things the way Days of Future Past or Age of Apocalypse would, because they don't have a starting point in the primary continuity or really cross over much, if at all. I'm thinking mainly of miniseries like X-Men The End, X-Men 2099, X-Men Noir, etc. Oh, Sam, that is a really good question, and it's one that, that we consider pretty regularly in the course of developing this show. So far, we've largely used that stuff as sort of flex points in our scheduling. If there's a week where one of us is going to be gone, for instance, those are stories that the other one can reasonably cover with a guest host without, you know, one of us feeling like we've missed out on something big. Um, they're also sort of good ways to kind of pad the schedule or, again, use in points where we might have had a whole lot of really heavy stuff and want to do something lighter or just something that's a, a change of pace and not mired deeply in continuity. Um so they, they basically give us some very, very necessary uh, flexibility. We like having the option to do them kind of when we feel like it and when we've got something relevant. Sometimes they are informed by which guests when we, we can get when. Sometimes they're informed by, you know, whether there's something in current comics that ties to them. Um, 
but yeah, there we we've basically got a, a great big big bin of those that we can we can reach into when we need one, and it's pretty great. Lokio asks on Tumblr, "How do you feel about the Bishop Deathbird romantic pairing and their adventures?" Okay, so I'll admit that I have not read many of the issues in which they've punched stuff and made out together. Uh, the beginning of that was during one of my my gap periods that I look forward to catching up with, you know, through the podcast. But conceptually, and from what I know about their dynamic, having read a great deal about it. I really dig it. The opposites attract feel of them, it works for me. There's by the book Bishop with his intense but controlled emotions, smashing against Kalsai Neramani's chaotic but vivacious self-interest. It's fun. They're cartoon hot girl and Green Lantern, right? Holy crap, they totally are. I mean, okay, to be fair, Deathbird is way worse than Hawkgirl, but still, it's, it's very much that dynamic. It's an odd couple kind of thing with romantic tension and adventures and conflicts. It's great. I think it's way more interesting than Bishop's romance with the similarly duty-bound Storm and better in pretty much every way than Deathbird being with freaking Vulcan, even if both of those pairings were in character. This one I like, and I think now I'm going to go read those comics early. Uh, yeah, no one should ever date Vulcan. That's, that's my stance on that particular stage of it. Listeners, if you take one thing from this episode about Excalibur, it's that you shouldn't date Vulcan. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support on Patreon come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional entities. I believe today the mic goes to uh, the, the crowd favorite in the returning Sexy Dracula. Necrom. Necrom. Any mystical being can simply drink the life of those around them. But you, I, Dracula, expected better. You've lived thousands of years, but you've learned nothing. Your victims die quickly and terrified. Those of Gretchen Gigan learn to yearn for the sweet kiss of vampire and the guilty pleasure of release that it brings. Your theatricality begins and ends in a few flames and stretching out your arms. Damien Whiter wears well the cape and medallions of undead nobility that set the hearts of the living fluttering in terror and desire. You, Necrom, lack sensuality, lack respect for the art of the predator. But all is not lost. A few days at Castle's Sexy Dracula, some advice from Gretchen and Damien, and you might yet learn that it is passion, not power, that warms this cold, cold flesh. And we'll pivot from there to the angry Claremontian narrator. Look at you, James Tynan IV, and your proudly vaunted free will. Playing heroes like puppets, maneuvering them through your plots and gambits as if you were their very creator. And they mere pieces on your game board. But what if you weren't the mastermind you believed yourself to be? What if the fingers from which your many strings dangled were themselves controlled by another player still and had been for generations upon generations? What if, instead of Grand Master, you yourself are merely a pawn of Bednar? And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. 
our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we're checking in with the man who is the best at what he does. And what he does is appear in a really implausible number of books at once. Right, it's time for not one, but two tales of Wolverine. The Jungle Adventure and Bloody Choices. Bloody Choices.